morning. My name is Eric. I'm going to read uh, the scripture today, Isaiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, every one his fellow, and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder, and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. And that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people." For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people... Infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. Thank you, Eric. Thanks. What an encouraging portion of scripture, huh? <laughs> Yay. We're, uh, we're continuing in a series through Isaiah, the first five chapters this summer, and uh, in the midst of a series called Tried in Truth. This morning's message is entitled Stability. Stability. And uh, we're going to... Um, we're going to unpack the, the text a little bit, those first 15 verses of chapter 3 this morning. And before I get into uh, the text, I want to tell you a little bit about some of my experience in, uh, in my early years. Uh, the school district that I went to had uh, five different elementary schools that at sixth grade would then merge into a middle school. And so sixth grade was kind of like uh, when everybody kind of reconvened in order to try to find their identity or any sense of stability. It was actually somewhat traumatic in my life, if I remember, because uh, right around fourth or fifth grade, it's like you start to um, socially interact on a different level. You know, or prior to that, it's like you're just kind of going along for the ride, and uh, all of a sudden, in fourth and fifth grade, uh, there's some social interactions that are different, and just when you kind of have a sense of like stability or identity, all of a sudden, they merge you from all these different school districts, and all of a sudden, like, it's all over, <laughs> and uh, hormones are hitting, and life is being redefined, and all of a sudden you're looking around, and you're like, I don't fit in here at all. I don't know where my friends went. I don't know what's going on. And I remember really in particular in sixth grade, um, being coming from the elementary school that we were at, we had this thing called field days. And during field days, you just compete. And uh, it was competing from running and jumping and all of this stuff. And so I had kind of this sense of um, identity in the fact that I was one of the faster kids in the school and uh, that I could run faster, that I could jump a little higher. And I was a relatively short person um, 
at that time. In fact, when I graduated from high school, I actually lied on my driver's license. Uh, I, I was on my driver's license that I was 5'11". I was actually 5'8", and I went up on my tippy toes just before they took the picture. <laughs> uh, it's kind of funny, but um, so I was 5'11", went off to college and grew uh, a ton, came home my freshman year, and I was 6'3", uh, and my dad was like, what in the world happened? Like, I have no idea. Um, but in either case, uh, I'm saying that to say, uh, it wasn't like I was super tall and could jump really high. All that I had was like, I was one of the faster kids and I could jump pretty high for as short, relatively short as I was. And all of a sudden we're in sixth grade and all these kids from other school districts are, are from other elementary schools are coming together. And so we're in gym and there are kids that run faster than me and there are kids that jump higher than me. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, I'm not very special at all, <laughs> and I don't think I fit in at all, and this is horrifying. And I just remember trying to, to come up with a reason as to why it was that my world felt like it was coming unraveled, and then it became clear. As I surveyed the gym, and there was this enormous number of people running around, I realized all the kids that ran the fastest and jumped the highest had one thing in common, the sneakers they were wearing. And so I was like, oh my gosh, that's the problem. I don't have Nike Air, right? And if you are my age, which is like 20-something, um, no, I'm 41, right? Okay, I'm 41. That's so funny. I really could care less, but I always get it wrong. So I'm, uh, I'm 41 years old, and so if you remember at that time, it was like pre-Reebok uh, Pump, now I'm aging myself, right? So pre that and right into not just Nike, but Nike Air. And so it was like a big deal. These kids were running around with Nike Air. And of course they could run faster. They had air beneath their heels, right? <laughs> Hello, duh, Claude, that's the problem. Look how high they can jump. They basically have springs in their feet. And so if only I could get a pair of Nike Airs. Um, and honestly, this is very similar to the presentation I gave to my parents as they were like, yeah, how much are they? I don't think that's happening, you know? And I was like, but they make me run faster and jump higher. My dad's like, wow, we thought you were so smart. Uh, you know, and so in either case, um, you know, I, I chipped in some of my birthday money and all that. And I remember I went and got a pair of Nike Airs and I thought, this is it. This is the answer to the stability in life, my identity issues. I will go into school tomorrow looking taller, running faster, jumping higher, you're welcome. Claude has arrived, right? And so uh, I put them on and I decided to test them uh, against my younger sister. And so we, uh, we raced and she was devastated. It turns out my sneakers run faster than hers. And uh, man, we were really not that smart. You know, I mean, I remember being like, my sneakers are faster. She's like, I don't, it's amazing. <laughs> I have no explanation right now. I'm like, I know, let's jump, right? I can touch higher than you. And she's like, this is incredible. They're magical shoes. I was like, I think they might be. Uh, and uh, so I remember going to bed and looking at them as I'm falling asleep, being like, I hope no one steals them. It was so weird, right? Everything was kind of in these stupid shoes that are now like gone, destroyed, right? As quickly as it comes, they go. And, uh, so I walked into school the next day, and uh, I had Jim, and I had some friends that were like, whoa, sweet shoes. I was like, I know, right? Wait till you see me run. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, uh, I ran, and it turns out I ran exactly around the same <laughs> speed. I know, 
It's shocking, right? This is, uh, yeah. It's going to get really crazy in just a second. Um, I did not jump any higher. What? I know, right? Yeah, so um, it was basically like uh, I just had a different pair of shoes on. And so uh, I know that's going to be really earth-shattering to you, but the thing for me is it was (laughs) earth-shattering. I was like, what has gone wrong? I thought for sure that these sneakers were going to change everything. I thought for sure that they were going to deliver on everything I hoped they would deliver on, and in fact, they didn't. And so the question I want you to consider as we go into the message this morning is what do you do when what you've hoped for can't deliver on its promise? What do you do when, when what you've hoped for can't deliver on its promise? Now, whether you want to admit it or not, when what you've hoped for can't deliver on its promise, you, we, are filled with disappointment and despair. We're, we're borderline devastated by the fact that we've put our hope in something and it's not delivering. It's not stabilizing our life the way that we thought for sure that it would. And, and you may say that you don't care, right? I know that that's one of my default responses to things like, I don't care. And I do think that there's a part of me that largely does not care. But I also know that there's a part of me that's kind of self-protecting, that it's like a mechanism of like, I don't care. And I'm just going to say I don't care until I stop caring, right? And so whether or not you say you don't care or you might say you assumed that someone or something, because the reality is we can put our hope in someone that lets us down. So whether you, you say to yourself, I, I, I knew for sure that that thing or that person wouldn't deliver on its promise anyway. It might be a way of self-soothing because the reality is if you've hoped for something, you see, there's a difference when you just kind of, uh, when you kind of expect something or you expect someone to let you down or you're not sure it's going to follow through. But when you've hoped for something, it means your heart has longed for it. It means that your mind has imagined what life could look like in alternate reality. You've hoped for it. Your heart gravitates to the potential. Your mind envisions what could be. You start to live as if there's another reality that is in fact better than your current reality and so therefore you are hoping for it. It's different. You see, when you've attached hope to something, that something becomes the stabilizing factor in your life. Let me say that again. Because there's a connection there that you might not naturally make. When you've attached your hope to something, when your heart begins to long for it, and your mind envisions that reality, you actually start to see your life become stabilized in that potential alternative reality. When you've attached hope to something, that something becomes stabilizing to your life. So in a lot of ways, to ask what you've put your hope in is to ask What is stabilizing your life? Isn't that interesting? To say, what is it that you're hoping in is to really ask, what is it that is stabilizing your life? Now, maybe you don't like that. (laughs) But as humans, Christian or not, we crave a sense of stability. Like we want a sense of stability. And some of our versions of stability would be perceived as instability by others, okay? So there's a range of what we define as stability. But the fact is, as human beings, we all desire a sense of stability. And that desire for stability provides opportunity for us to place our hope in whatever we think 
will stabilize our life, right? When things are a little bit uneven, oh man, if only this, then, then it would be okay. Then if, if I could just stabilize my life. So I have an example here. Maybe you don't uh, like your current financial situation. Maybe you're stressed by bills and uh, you put your applications out because you're not sure that you even like your job and it doesn't seem to be working out the way you want it to work. You're looking for a new job. You get that interview that you kind of hoped for. It seems like the perfect job. Financially, it's going to deliver on all the things you want it to deliver on. And so you go in and you have that interview and you start to hope. You start to, to allow your mind to visualize what life could look like. Your heart starts to gravitate towards the potential. You go in and you look at this business and you meet with the people and you think, you know what, I think, I think my life would be better with this job. Let's say you get the job. Everything comes through. It's like the angels have sung and the Lord has parted the skies like, ah. I almost went Little Mermaid there. I don't know why. Every once in a while, I start to be like, ah, I don't know why it goes there, but it does. So in either case, and I didn't have to say it, except for I would have kept singing it in my mind because I have that kind of ADD thing going on. And I'd have been like, Little Mermaid, Little Mermaid, the whole time I'm preaching. So I just had to say it. In either case, long for the ride. Um, let's say you get the job. You get it, right? And maybe you thought I was going to go a different way in the illustration that like you wouldn't get the job and your hopes would be shattered. No, you get the job. You get it. And you get that paycheck and you're like, it is ginormous. It is everything I thought it would be. Look at all the money. We could never spend this. And so you have this sense of stability. And you have this sense of like, I can't believe it. This job is delivering on the endless joy I thought that it would. All of my problems are solved. And then you're like, this boss is kind of a jerk. In fact, I can't stand him at all. My financial situations are resolved, but I don't like my environment. If only my environment would change, then I would have endless joy, right? We do that in so many different areas of our life because this is what happens. When we feel something fulfilled, it doesn't ultimately deliver on the gap that we have. It only fills part of it. And so the moment that stability is felt in one area, the minute there's financial stability, all of a sudden we realize there's something else instable, unstable in our life, that there's an unstable portion of our life. And so then we rush over there and we say, you know what, if only we could stabilize this, then everything would be okay. And it's like we're spinning the plates of our life. If only this could work out. Oh, you know, I've got enough money now, but if only I had this house, then, oh, if I had a vacation home, then, you know, and now if only I could fix my spouse. Anyway, <laughs> that's another message. So in either case, we, we go through enough about what I heard Meredith say this morning. Um, no, I'm joking. The fact is, it doesn't. You, you get the things you long for, and in the end, they don't deliver on what we thought they would deliver on. They don't deliver on endless joy. And as quickly as a sense of stability has come, it goes. Disappointment and despair. And so you start your search again. If only this. If only that. I mean, you name the situation, the examples are literally endless. Maybe you love your job. Maybe you're in a great financial situation. Fine, bad illustration. Think of another area of your life. We say, if only this. Whatever the thing might be then my life would be better. Then it would be more stable. It's not a new human struggle. 
In fact, this morning's text is addressing the consequences of a nation that pursued stability in themselves and in the world around them. Verses 1 through 3, chapter 3 says this, For behold, the Lord of hosts is taking away, taking away from Jerusalem and Judah, support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank. Okay, so that verse, just so you know, like it is unpacking. When it says supply and support, it's literally saying everything that you need to sustain your life, food and water. When it goes on, it says mighty men, soldier, judge, prophet, diviner, um, elder, and then it says captain of 50 and man of rank. It's literally saying anyone with the capacity to lead, gone. Anyone that has leadership capacity, The captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician, and the expert in charms. Verses 1 through 3, what God is saying to Judah is because of your pursuit of stability, apart from me, apart from God, you've put your hope, your mind has envisioned, your heart has longed for, you've put it in things like food and drink and leaders and enchanters, because of that, because of your pursuit of stability in the created, I will remove your false sense of stability. I'll remove it all. All of the things you place your hope in, I'll take from you. Sounds super cheery, right? Isaiah goes on to describe the chaos that ensues when humanity's sense of stability is removed. The verses that follow go on and and talk about how they pursue leadership in in the most chaotic of places. The the degradation of society begins to take place. They place their hope in the created and it simply cannot deliver. It can't deliver. This is interesting um, and you might miss it if you just look at face value. The thing that's interesting about the text as you read through it is your perception of God has, uh, has the ability to change here a little bit. And, and maybe not, maybe you're already there. But the perception of God's grace and mercy on humankind should be expanded as you read this text. Because if God can in fact remove stability, then it means that societal stability is in fact a gift from God. Isn't that interesting? You see, if God has the capacity to remove stability from society, it means that we function in the continual common grace and mercy of God to stabilize our very society in this world. That food, water, leadership, the air that we breathe, life itself is a gift from God. That should shift your perception because I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in what it is that we don't have or what is it that we need or what is it we want to pursue or or maybe a healing or a situation in our life or a circumstances and we forget that in fact, God is providing the very air in our lungs. The fact that you woke up this morning is a gift from God. I watched in a grocery store as a young child, clutched their stuffed animal, just white-knuckling it, with an angry voice, declaring to their mother that, in fact, because they weren't getting their way, they wanted a certain toy, that they loved their stuffed animal more than their mother. 
you know. It just amazed me. It amazed me on so many levels because I just could not believe, like, and you've all experienced those, right? Like, your kid is never the worst behaved in a grocery store, right? It's always that other kid. <laughs> no, I, I just watched this, this kid just, she's holding on to it. She's yelling at her mother, you don't love me. My stuffed animal loves me because you won't get me what I want. And I was amazed at the mother's response. She seemed completely unfazed by whatever embarrassment might take place by your child just screaming at you in public. She was super calm, and she looked down. She said, I'm glad you love that stuffed animal because I gave it to you. She's like, and I love you very much. Can that stuffed animal buy you the toy for you? And the angry little girl <laughs> shakes her head, no. She goes, okay. Well, I gave you that stuffed animal. And if you ever tell me that you love that stuffed animal more than me, I'll take it from you. I was like, oh. <laughs> and she's like, ah. <laughs> I was like, wow, all right, mom, okay. <laughs> and I think it's, I share the story with you because I think it's a picture of us being the brats that we are. As we sit white-knuckled to the things that we have and we declare to God the things that we want. No, I want this. Listen, I know my life better than you. I know the way this is going to play out, God. This makes sense. Listen, wouldn't it be such a testimony to the world around me? If only you poured out your blessings on me, Lord, that I could be a walking testimony of your grace and provision. You know, That's the way this story should end, God. Don't you know? And I feel like the God of heaven's looking at it saying, you like the air you breathe? Yeah. Do you like the fact that you woke up this morning? Because I've given you all of life. And I can take it away. <laughs> Thank God he doesn't function that way. But, that God is a God of grace. It's amazing to me that we function in the reality that our very lives themselves are not a gift. But all that we have is a gift from a glorious God. Everything we have. Verses 8 through 9 say, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bear witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves, defying his glorious presence. Hmm. I think when we fail to take note and awareness of who God is and what it is that he has done in our life, his grace and his mercy that we breathe in and breathe out, that, that air fills our lungs, I think in essence we are defying his glorious presence. The every area of our lives, when verse 9 says that we are, I'm oh, sorry, <laughs> anybody that's watching has no idea what happened, but I'm just distracted enough to where I had to look over there, so something fell in the room. We're okay. <laughs> verse 9, um, <laughs> can I recover is the question. Verse 9 talks about defying his glorious presence. Verse 9 implies something. It implies that openly parading and flaunting sin 
is the final stage of rebellion. That rebellion, it begins in our hearts, but that the final stage of rebellion comes about in the way that, that Judah starts to function, that the way Jerusalem begins to function, it's that literally their faces are bearing witness against them. It implies that when we openly parade the sin of our lives, when we justify the sin of our lives and then become almost proud of our sin, that's the progression. We believe that we've stabilized our own lives. That's the essence of rebellion. It's to say, I got this. Look, God, I worked it out. I'm figuring it out. I'm good. I got it all together. We're winning. Foolishly convinced that we're actually winning at this thing called life. And so we lean in to whatever we believe will bring stability. Verse 10 says, tell the, uh, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. It's almost like a, a little bit of a consolation. Like, oh, good. The righteous are going to be okay. There's a cross-reference here to Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. I'll read. It says this, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Oh. There's a sense of hope, like, oh good, the righteous will get what they want. And then there's this reality of, oh my gosh, I'm not righteous. <laughs> so I get wrath and fury? <laughs> You see, you get hope and, fair, uh, and fairness in the sense of this consolation that we're going to, as righteous people, get what we deserve if you fall into that category. The problem is the way the unrighteous are defined is self-seeking and don't obey the truth. And that's us. Whether you like it or not, maybe you're in denial. You're like, no, I'm a really good person. It's great. It's very self-righteous of you. Um, but the problem is <laughs> self-righteous leads right to wrath and fury. So there's this tension that we live in, in the fact that we are sinners in need of grace, that we're literally held together by the grace of God. And verse 11 says, woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. What the scripture is saying is, we're going to reap the consequences of our own unrighteousness. We'll reap the consequences of our sin, of our self-seeking, of our lack of obedience. If only we could live our lives not self-seeking. If only we could live our lives in complete obedience. If only we could be sinless. The problem is we can't. But thankfully, God in his mercy knew that we could never fulfill the expectation of righteousness and he sent his son, Jesus, to live the sinless life. To be obedient, even obedience to the death on a cross. So Jesus lived the life that we need to live. And then when he's on the cross, he literally says, Father, why have you forsaken me? As he breathes his last breath. 
You see, Jesus himself, as he lives the life that we should live, he lays down the consequences, the blessing of his life. He takes on the consequences of our life, and in that moment, his life is without stability so that we can live our lives with stability. You see, Jesus takes the consequences of our lives and he imparts upon us the righteousness so that we can live a life of stability filled with grace and mercy. Jesus does the very thing that we're incapable of doing. He was without stability so that we can stop settling for the tried. We can stop settling to try and work out the stability of our life. We can stop trying to spin the plates of our life, trying to bring a sense of stability and hope and meaning, identity. We can stop the tried and instead we can walk in truth. The truth of who Jesus Christ is. What it is that he's done for us. The true sense of stability. The rock that stabilizes our life. You see, when we pursue stability in things apart from God, there's implications to that. And so for every person in this room, we have the ability to find stability in our identity as children of God. But there's implications when, when we live our lives and pursue stability in things apart from God. It's two ways, really. The effects of one is the way that we interact with God. So the way we interact our, with God is actually changed when we consider stability apart from him. This is what I mean. If we want stability in our life, if the pursuit is to try to stabilize our own lives and work things out, then when we feel compelled to take a God risk, we won't, right? Easy question. I'm not risking this. Why? Because it'll destabilize my life. And again, that what I'm living for is stabilizing. Like I, I can't stop the journey towards stabilizing my life to do something God is at. That's too risky. And so it, it impacts directly our willingness to obey the voice of God. And, and I don't mean like this booming voice from heaven. I mean a sense within ourselves to do something beyond ourselves. God is laying something on our heart. We know we need to do it, but it's just too risky. It might cost too much. If it destabilizes our lives, we're not sure we're willing to do it. As if we were born to stabilize. Think about how pitiful of a life that would be. That you would be born into this earth for the sole purpose of accumulating as much stuff as you can stabilizing your life just for a window long enough to say, I think I did it, and then die. What? That's absurd. What, what, a, what a lower calling for your one and only life. But to consider that, in fact, there's this narrative written all the way back from the beginning of time, this message of hope this message of stability and love and grace and that we're placed strategically as a part of this journey and that God himself would redeem our lives so that we could be his hand and feet, that we would risk things, that we would even move outside the stability of our life to the confusion of all of everyone around us. Why? Because God has impressed upon us to do something kind, to do something generous, to do something eternal. 
there's another way. It affects the way we interact with God. And the second thing is it affects the way we interact with others. We start to care about the perceptions of others if our goal is stabilizing. If we want to stabilize things, then every interaction is a show. Put on your best face. Why? Because we have to interact with them. Why? Because we're trying to stabilize our life right now. We got to put on a perception. We got to, listen, we're on all the time. Deal? Deal. Okay. Kids, behave. Why? Because we're on. It's all about stabilizing everything. Don't let the neighbors think we're angry at you. (laughs) Shut the door. They won't hear us scream. (laughs) Shut up! Yes. I was always amazed at my mom's capacity to like turn into a different person when the doorbell rang. You know? It's like, I will kill you. Ding, ding. Hold on. Hello. I'm like, where did Betty Crocker come from? She's dealing with Marilyn Manser to Betty Crocker right there. We care about the perceptions of others if we're trying to stabilize our lives. But if we are free from the desire to try to stabilize our lives and we're walking in the truth that God awards us and the reality of who Jesus is, then we can live for others missionally. We can live on mission rather than ourselves. We can be active in loving others in ways that may not make sense to them. This is a picture of the Apostle Paul. I mean, he talks about, in, in Philippians, I mean, he's, he's writing in a prison and he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's not suicidal. He's literally saying that the cares and the worries of this world are inconsequential to what it is that God's called me to do. And so I'm going to live for the things that God has called me to do. And in the end, if it, if it costs me my life, then so be it. Because I'm not living my life to try to stabilize it. I'm living my life on mission because of what God's called me to do and who he's called me to be. And so the things and the cares of this world, they, they suddenly don't matter. And so I want to ask you to consider the implications in your own life. Reflect for a moment. How much of your life is about trying to stabilize things? To get enough money saved, to, to make sure that you end up in the right college, to make sure you get the right job, the, the worries and the cares of the world. To just Can we just stabilize things? And all the while, God himself is saying, I already worked out your stability. You don't have to try to stabilize. I did it. It's done. Will you just live in the stability that I provide? so that you can live on mission, so that you can walk in the fullness of who it is I've called you to be and what it is I've called you to do. And so as we leave this place this morning, after we respond to the truth, I just, I want to challenge you to consider something. We always say here that the the text requires something from us and None of us are exempt from that. And we can read this text at face value and it can sound really depressing or we can read it and understand that it's a warning from the Lord and that he sent his son so that we don't have to fall victim to the consequences revealed. So the question I want you to consider, the application as we leave this place, is with whom in my life will I share the message of hope? With whom in my life Will I share the message of hope? This is a 
interesting application that I, I want to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit and let you know that the preaching and teaching team, as we considered this, we were thinking, well, how does this application resonate to the person in the room that might be a skeptic, you know, to the things of Christ and share a message of hope? But the more we thought about it and, and contemplated it, the more we realized that maybe the person that those people need to share the message of hope with is themselves. That there's application for every single person in this room to come face to face with the truth of who Christ is and the implications in our lives when we find stability in him. When we finally grow tired of the things that we try and we rest in the truth of who Christ is. And so I want you to consider that this morning as you leave this place, whether you're reflecting on it yourself within your own heart and mind or whether it means you living missionally I want you to consider what the implications are from this text, this message of hope. The first thing that I want you to consider is, do you know the message of hope yourself? Have you really come face to face with the reality of who Christ is, what he's done, and are you walking in it? Or are you still striving so hard to stabilize your life? For you this morning, maybe application is message of hope for self to speak the gospel to yourself and to say, okay, God, I'm done trying to, to live my life for myself and I'm, I want you to be the Lord and leader of my life. So maybe that's your application this morning. And if that's you, it's as simple as praying a prayer, admitting that you're a sinner, acknowledging what Christ has done on the cross for you and asking him to be the Lord and leader of your life. You can pray that in the quietness of your seat right now. I'd love to have a conversation with you about it so that it's not an emotional response or a, or a desperate moment, but in fact a decision that you're informed in making. For others of us in this room, if you've crossed that line of faith already, then what's the application for you? What does it look like to take on this idea that Christ stabilizes our life? What, what is it that God's asking you to do? Maybe the message of hope looks like a God risk. And I don't know what a God risk looks like for you. I know what it looks like for me. And I know the things that I look to do to try to stabilize my own life. Because no one is exempt from the word this morning. Every single person in this room tries to stabilize their life. But what is it that the Lord's speaking to you about? Maybe it is a person that you need to share a message of hope quite literally with. Maybe they're hopeless in an area of their life that God has walked you through and you have the ability to say, listen, I used to struggle with the same thing. But because of who Jesus is in my life, because of what he's done, I'd love to talk to you about it. Maybe it is a spiritual conversation. And I think we should all be equipped to be able to have that conversation. If you'd like to be equipped to have that conversation, then your application might be to be spiritually coached. But whatever that looks like this morning, it doesn't always have to be a spiritual conversation. We see within scripture where people were invited to just come into God's presence. And so there is an invitational style of evangelism. And so the message of hope, you sharing the message of hope might look like, hey, listen, I don't have all the answers. Like, honestly, this is kind of new to me too. I'm still learning who Jesus is and what he's done in my life. Will you just come, to, come with me to church? And maybe it's not even this church. I'm not just trying to populate Centerway. I, I don't know. where it, Bring them anywhere where there's a Bible-preaching church because we're talking about furthering the gospel, not just growing a church. 
I'm talking about the mission that God has placed on our lives to take the message of hope and to say, listen, I want to tell you about someone that's changed my life. You don't have to play this game of spinning these plates. It'll never pay off. It never delivers. So what does that look like for you? Is it an invitation? Is it a spiritual conversation? Is it a conversation with one of your kids, with one of your friends, with a parent? I I don't know. But I know that the text requires something from every single one of us. And so I want us to take a moment, if you would, just bow your head. Where you sit, you can keep your eyes open if you want or close your eyes if it helps you kind of focus. And I want to ask you as the worship team comes back up to, to lead us in a response to this this morning, I want you to consider what is it that God is asking of you? What does application look like to you this morning? If it's a person that you need to invite or a person that you need to have a spiritual conversation with, I'm confident that the Holy Spirit's already put that person on your mind. I'm confident of it. I know already, as I even said the words, you thought of the person and you're like, oh God, no. I don't want to talk to them about that. I'm not sure. I don't know what to say. I'm not sure. And listen, that we, don't, we get so worked up about perception because we're concerned about stability. But the reality is, we're part of a redemptive story that God is writing. If we choose to be. So I want to challenge you to begin to, to pray and respond and say, okay, God, I'm, I'm willing. I'm willing to pray that prayer myself. I'm willing to have that conversation with that person. I'm willing to invite that person. Whatever application might look like, I want us to respond in this time to who it is that God is what he's done for each and every one of us.